and also afterwards, when the sons of God came and the daughters of men, and they were born children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okay. Um, men are multiplying on the face of the land. Now, as you look at that, you might notice in verse 5, that as men multiply, wickedness multiplies also. Um, and as men are multiplied, daughters are born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, that already doesn't sound real good. They saw something was good, and they took. What does that remind you of? That's what Eve did. So those are some verbs that are not particularly uh, promising for us. It really is usurping God's role, as we've seen. If you look and you try to see and decide what looks good to you, God is the one to see and evaluate that things are good. And the, when these sons of God take these wives for themselves, they're obviously transgressing the boundaries that God has established. God didn't want them doing that, and they did it. And so you've got this repeated pattern. God establishes the boundaries, man sees it differently, and he goes beyond what God has permitted. Now that part, I think, is clear. Um... The questions that, one of the questions we have though in this section is, what does he mean by the sons of God and the daughters of men? That is an extremely controversial issue. I'm going to tell you what I think he means and try to defend it. I don't expect all of you to agree with me. Um, in the Old Testament, the expression sons of God is rarely used. One of the places where it's used, as you may remember, was in the book of Job, where the sons of God came before God. And the sons of God there appear to be angelic beings. I think the angels saw, or some angels, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took them for wives. I'm going to answer a couple, of, or one objection immediately, and then show you some reasons why I think that view is correct. The objection that probably most people have immediately is, Jesus said that angels cannot marry. And it's right that angels do not and should not marry. And in their angelic state, they don't marry. Angels don't have flesh and blood. They're spirit beings. But when angels came down to the earth, they often assumed a human body. And so, while you would say angels don't have bodies, the angels on the earth did, you know, temporarily. While you'd say angels in heaven don't marry, that's true, that doesn't necessarily mean that angels who transgress God's commands don't violate that, assume human bodies, and marry on the earth. But the real reason, uh, one of the, the biggest reasons I think that this view is correct, is several New Testament references to these angels. Um, the least strong is 2 Peter 2.4, but I do think that's what he's, this is what he's talking about here, but I'm kind of building up to my case. 2 Peter 2.4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, when with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I think he's speaking of the angels who sinned, the sons of God, and the ancient world, the daughters of men and their offspring, uh, is, is, what, is why he puts those together, I think. But a stronger passage is 1 Peter chapter 3. And it's studying 1 Peter chapter 3 that caused me to first really evaluate this view of Genesis 6. Some other explanations are given in 1 Peter 3, but I think they're inadequate. Uh, in verse 18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went, and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely to the water. When Jesus was raised, he went and he proclaimed his victory over the spirits who were in prison. But they weren't always in prison. Once, they were disobedient. When was that? When Noah was preparing the ark. Back in that era. And, and so these angels, because these spirits, because they were disobedient in the days of Noah, they're in prison. And Jesus went and made a proclamation, a victory proclamation over, over those angels. Look at verse 22. Talking about Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So I think the idea is Jesus put down and, and announced his victory over those angels who were disobedient in Noah's day. One more passage, and then I'll let you talk about whatever you want to. Uh, the first Peter 3 is what convinced me of that. Jude 6 and 7 is what convinced me that I'd been properly uh, persuaded. Uh, this is really hard to get around, I think. Uh, Jude 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way as the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, in Sodom and Gomorrah, the strange flesh was men with men. In the case of the angels, it was angels with women. But in both cases, it was strange flesh, and it was gross immorality. And so I think when we come back to Genesis 6, that we should take sons of God in the more normal understanding of the Old Testament. That angels saw, some angels, some wicked angels, some angels that were willing to fall into this, saw some beautiful women and came and cohabited with them, and, and so forth, and that that was sinful. Um, the ten, here's, here's another possible problem with this view. 
why punish mankind if it was the sons of God who were doing this? Well, it's kind of like asking why punish mankind if it was Satan that tempted Eve? Well, I don't care if it's Satan who does the tempting or wicked angels who do the tempting. Men should have resisted that temptation. So that's what I think he's saying. But I, like I said, I don't expect everybody to agree with that. I'll be glad for you to present other views or ask questions or make objections or whatever. How could you repeat? <laughs> 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 so the only thing I can think of is that it just picks right up with, you know, I guess initially I thought it would have been talking about the godly line of Seth, but why make the distinction of sons of God and daughters of men if that was the case? That's a really hard distinction. So, why wouldn't you just say sons of God and daughters of God too? But or maybe it's contrasting the godly versus the wicked. I don't know. Yes, I'm just not. Sh while we do have a contrast between Seth's line and Cain's line, in the sense of Lamech versus Enoch. It's a whole lot to pull on over here to Genesis 6 to think that Seth's line was good and Cain's line was bad in general. And that sons of God means Seth's descendants and the daughters of men means Cain's descendants. Because, you know, that, that's like, wow. That's, that's a stretch to me. It's a broad brush. Yeah, that's that's a lot to... We don't, we're not going on very much to come to that view. And you would not normally contrast sons of God and daughters of men in that way, it seems to me. Well, it doesn't explain the Nephilim either. No, I'm not sure my view totally does either, but maybe it's a little easier. Well, I think it's easier to get there. I can't explain it, but... Well, is, is another view the uh, daughters of men being Cain's uh, uh, descendants. and Yeah, that's what Clint's saying. Yeah. yeah. But that's just like, how would we know that? You know, to say daughters of men were Cain's descendants, what would make us say that? Well, it's 426. <clears throat> At, during the time of Seth, men began to call the name of the Lord. So the assumption is then it's Seth's descendants that are godly. Yeah, sons of God. That's probably a lot to put into that verse. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the, the connection I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is the connection that's made. It's just like, wow. At that point, it's legit. But how yeah. do we know that each one of the descendants followed God wholeheartedly, you know, I began to wonder if Methuselah was faithful. Like, why would he have died in the year of the flood if that were the case? That makes me wonder. Well, of course, I think the answer to that would be, well, the sons of God obviously be, had perverted themselves and that's why the flood comes. Hmm. But I think it's even, sons of God being the descendants of Seth, I can swallow easier than daughters of men being the descendants of Cain. I just don't, that, that seems like an unnatural restriction to place on that phrase. And when you have so much New Testament confirmation, especially 1 Peter 3 and Jude 6 and 7, that are difficult to explain. 
you know, who was it that Jesus went and made the proclamation to that were in prison, who once were disobedient in the days of Noah? I've never understood that passage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's not saying he announced his victory over those wicked angels, I don't know a good coherent view of that. I know what people say, but it's not right. And they'll say, well, that was actually... Jesus going in a spiritual way in the person of Noah when he preached against those people, and that's just not fair to the language of that passage. It's not talking about something Jesus did in Noah. It's talking about something he did once he was raised from the dead, and he went and made the proclamation. It's really tough to get that to be Jesus speaking through Noah, I think, in just terms of the language of the passage. So I think once you start seeing the evidence and once you start thinking about, you know, don't think of sons of God in New Testament terms, but Old Testament terms, then it's a lot more, it fits things together a lot better. Cameron. I've um, gone along with what your view of this. I've actually read an extra biblical um, history like passage thing called The Watchers or some of it I read, and it's saying exactly along the lines that you're talking, and it brings in, or the commentary on it I read with it, it brought in those passages from the New Testament you're talking about, and it it had like the whole story, and the Nephilim were what came out of that bad stuff, and they're like extra strong, the giant people. And, and maybe so. I, you know, I'm just not quite as sure um, how to view the Nephilim. I'm a little more ambiguous on that, but maybe so. Maybe the Nephilim were mighty men because they were the descendants of angels and women. I think it just seems weird to us. I think that's the hard thing. It's like, wow, angels came down and married women? How could that be? <laughs> you know, but I don't know that that's a good reason to reject the view. That is the view of, of most of the early Christians, as far as I know. And, you know, is apparently the view of Peter and Jude. So. Yeah. Does this somewhat explain 1 Corinthians 11.10? Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels? That I mean, that the women were so beautiful that they had to have something... I probably don't want to go there. It was just one that came to my mind. I doubt it, okay. but who knows? Okay. This is one of those passages you want to read fast. <laughs> but I, I, was, I was thinking about uh, Lot, the angels that came to him. The men wanted to have sex with them. There's no, they did not. But, uh, but yes, they were... S- they appeared to be sexually available, at least, because they had human bodies. Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 38, 7. I've also heard that, you know, just sons of God and daughters of men, sons of God were godly men, and the daughters of men were women who were not. Not necessarily attached to the lineage of either Seth or Cain, but just in a general, I mean, that's that's one of the basic. And that's probably a little better. I think trying to get at Cain and Seth is complicated. What if we just took sons of God, God as being godly people? You could see that, especially from the New Testament. But daughters of men being wicked? 
I mean, I don't know. I think that's not... How do you just know daughters of man are the wicked ones? Yeah. 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 Like sons of God versus... Like, I'm not saying I think that way, but I can see that if you're saying something is of God versus of men, obviously of God is better. Yeah, that's true, but when it's daughters of men, that bothers me a little. I don't know. Maybe it should. Cameron. If the son, if going along with that view, if the sons were doing this and they were righteous, how are they righteous and doing this? Well, maybe they, yeah, exactly. They obviously didn't stay that way in that case, by that view. So I guess you would say they have been sons of God and now they're corrupting themselves. I think that would be how you'd have to argue that. I was also thinking, uh, uh, this may not have any weight, but just a thought. Uh, several times in the prophets, uh, you know, it seems like the writers use the female to depict the wickedness of some nations, like the virgin in Babylon or you know, the virgin daughter of Jerusalem. She will fall and that sort of thing you know, in regards to captivity. So I don't know. Just interesting, it doesn't depict a man that way, but I mean, there are some wicked men that are talked about in the Bible too, you know, yeah. it goes both ways. But yeah, I, I, I would agree, it goes both ways. Other thoughts, Kim? You made the point earlier that some people argue that, um, why would the angels come down to us? Well, or something like that. And I've heard that people of this world, us men and all, I've heard that some people have um, married like cows and stuff, the beasts. And why would we do that? The same. Yeah, I don't think it's so much why, but could they, or is it possible? Oh, okay. But you know, I mean, these angels fell. They they didn't they didn't keep their proper abode. They didn't they didn't respect God's boundaries for them. You know, if my view is right, these are angels that sinned in what they did and were in prison. From verse 4, do we understand that it happened again after the flood? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Uh-huh. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. I don't think that we're locked into the sons of God coming down afterward. There were evidently some Nephilim that came back after, after the, the flood. flood. Okay. But, you know, what are Nephilim and what does this mean? You know, he says those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. I'm not sure that we, we can say necessarily that Nephilim have to be the product of the union of sons of God and daughters of men. There may be Nephilim produced in other ways. How would they come back after that? I'm saying, if this is a type of people, then people became that type of people after the flood also. Yeah, the word Nephilim just means to fall. So fallen ones or something. So there were fallen ones here, and then later on there were some more fallen ones. Yeah. He's saying they're not necessarily and, the product of the angels. Right. Then there are mighty men and men of renown after the flood as well. I, I, I'm not as clear on exactly how to look at the Nephilim. Uh, that's That's... Confusing to me. Aren't they called? Aren't they missing later? Yes, they are. And that weren't they? Or I thought they were the giants. They were. Okay, so 
Is that where you're assuming they are here too? Maybe they are. They're mighty. They're mighty, yeah, we know that. So. I'm also thinking, uh, I just had this idea about angels in general, but since we're talking about it here, I'll just bring it up. Uh, it seems like, you know, the angels can't, you know, being in God's presence can lose their spiritual status, but if we live a faithful life, and once we die and pass into that realm, we can never lose that. From I believe you're right. Yeah. I know you want to comment on that. I think that's correct. Um, you know, I'm assuming the angels, in some senses, uh, had a similar situation to us in that they had some freedom of choice. And if they cho chose uh, during time to fall, they could. They were not robots. The other thing that needs to be commented on here is verse 3. For the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. There are two main views of that. I have a slight preference, but I won't be dogmatic. Do you know what the two views of that are? Man will live to be older than 120 kind years. Kind of like saying his lifespan from here on out is limited to 120 years. What's the other view? 120 years till the flood. Yeah, there'll be another 120 years till the flood. I tend to lean toward that one. But I can see some validity in either one. I wouldn't I wouldn't be strong for that one, but that that's the one I tend to lean toward. However it is, God is not happy. <laughs> Men are not doing well. And he's going to do something about it. It never works well when God's order is not followed. Comments and questions, yes, Kevin. Um, Christmas and early, or what, um, Nephilim meant, what was that again? The fallen ones, didn't you say? Yeah, to fall, or... Okay, thank you. It comes from my verb, meaning to fall, so... It's in noun form. Ones <laughs> fell. <laughs> so, the... If we look at the verse 3, that it'll be 120 years before the flood, then this is happening roughly 20 years before Noah becomes the father of Shem. That would be correct, yes. Okay. They'd be growing up with some interesting people. <laughs> <laughs> Any way you look at it, that's probably true. Things are bad on the earth in Noah's yeah. day. Really bad. And that leads us to the next section. Escape from this one. Five to, <laughs> five to eight. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so how bad are things on the earth? God regretted that he made <laughs> That's pretty strong. What made him do that? Us. Well, the the uh, 
<clears throat> the uh, extreme language in verse 5, uh, every intent, only evil, continually. It's horrible. That, that is very strong in verse 5. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's as bad as it can get, it looks to me like. And uh, so God's sorry. Would you expect that? Would you expect God to have feelings like that? I think that surprises us. I think it does too. Well, it's like he's surprised, maybe. Or unex- it's, it's un- unexpected. I don't know that I agree with that. I think he's more hurt and grieved. I think in a way God expected it. God knew what would happen. Oh, I do too, but that's why I'm surprised at the language because I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect him to be sorry if he's just expecting it to happen. Okay. Yeah, that's part of what we would think, yes. That, you know, if God already knows, then why does he have feelings about it? Right. Or why did he make them in the first place? (laughs) Yes. I don't think he's saying, sometimes when we say we're sorry we did something, we mean like we wish we hadn't done it. I don't think it's saying that. I don't think it's saying, I wish I hadn't done it. But it grieves him that he's done it. It just hurt him. And he's very pained by what he sees. Now I think God would have done it all over again. I don't think he's, I think he's saying, well, man, that was a mistake. I wish I'd never done that. But he's, he's sorry in the sense he's he experienced sorrow and grief and anguish. It's interesting that God allows himself to feel. He's not a robot. And it's interesting that he feels things as we do them. He doesn't, you know, it's, I don't know, it's kind of like God has chosen to sort of um, relate to us in our time frame. You know, God had it seems to me like, a choice. God could have just played out the creation in his mind. You know, he could have mentally created, and, you know, made Adam and Eve, and mentally, you know, run through all of what would have happened throughout history, and what he would have done, and all that. You know, but God didn't do it that way. Divine daydream. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. I mean, God could have, God could have known it all without ever doing it. He didn't do that. He did make us. And he did cause things to happen. And he did give us freedom of choice. And he does choose to respond to our choices as we make those choices. God doesn't say, well, this person is going to turn out bad, so I'm just going to write them off. He actually blesses them and helps them and and does everything. He responds to them in real time. Even though ultimately he knows. Even though he knows. Yeah. Our, my mind can't handle that. How could we? <laughs> we aren't God. So I think we can't really understand how that would be. 
We just have to accept what God reveals about himself. And he reveals himself as a very personal God who is not detached, who is not a robot, who feels pain, who feels grief, who's hurt. And when when he sees this, it grieves him deeply. Now we may say, I just can't understand how God could be like that. I don't understand how somebody who has all knowledge could ever feel anything. Well, why couldn't he? You know, it's kind of like, you know, we sort of decide how God ought to be. You know, here's what I think the parameters of God would be. Well, all we know about how God would be is how he reveals that he is. So the God we actually know anything about is a God who does know everything ahead of time, but a God who actually feels grief and pain and sorrow at the time we sin. That's what we know. That that kind of blows our mind, blows our categories, doesn't everything about God? You know, tell me you understand how there's a God who's always been. That he's always been, I think, today would never arrive. That's the way it looks to me like. You know, explain how, you know, Jesus can be Son of God and Son of Man at the same time. You know, how does that work? I understand that. Doesn't make sense to me. But I accept it. I believe it firmly. I just don't think I have the capacity to fully grasp how that would all work together. So to me, I have to say, well, the God that is, is a God that both knows the future and is grieved at the present. But it does help me if I think about God as a personal, emotional God. You, you would see his compassion and mercy if you couldn't see this or wouldn't let yourself see this. Absolutely. I remember studying Job in a class setting and, and how we struggle with God. And, and God's nature and his capacity in a very similar kind of way. Yeah. Well, I think we can't expect to fully grasp and it all to make sense to us. I think when we feel like if we can't fathom it completely, it must not be true. Right. We are putting human limits on God. and We have no business doing that. I don't have to fathom it for it to be true, that's for sure. You know? And so, I think we just accept what the Bible reveals. God's right. And if it doesn't all quite, you know, mesh together in my own very limited conception, well, that's just because my concept is so limited. Kevin? It's kind of like, I don't know how a light bulb works. I have absolutely no idea how that thing gets shiny. But I very much believe it is bright. I I just can't understand it. But it is working. God is the same. Or he can be compassionate. And we just can't understand it. But we need to believe it and believe that's true. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, can you imagine somebody, you know, a thousand years ago, you with a cell phone? <laughs> and you're hearing what somebody's saying, you know, thousands of miles away? Wouldn't that blow your mind? 
you have no concept of, I don't know, what we'll go reading for that wave theory or translation. I don't know, I'm not even sure how it all works, but, you know, I did have physics for a year, whatever that meant back then. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then, though. But, I mean, you know, we kind of gotten to where we're accustomed to it, and even if we don't quite understand it, it sort of kind of makes sense to us. But, but can you imagine a thousand years ago? That just blew your mind. You wouldn't have any way to understand that. Even 200 years ago. Yeah. On a, on a relational level, there's a degree of this that we can, that we can kind of grasp. You know, I know of, uh, of young couples, they're married and they don't have any kids, and they really struggle with having kids because they've seen uh, loved ones or relatives who had kids that turned out really, really bad. And so they are scared to death to have children because they know there's no guarantee that they're going to turn out the way that they ought to and that they're going to love them and they're going to love God and they're going to be, they're afraid of the risk of rejection and the heartache of having a child not be what they ought to be. And so they withhold this, I'm never going to have kids because I know that there's a possibility that they won't be what I want. Um, God could have done that. I mean, that, that was what you were saying. You know, God could have played this whole thing out and been like, I know where this is going to go, and so I'm not really going to do this. And he still chose to give us the chance and the choice. And so you ask the question, why would God choose something he knew was going to bring him such grief and pain? Yeah. If you were God, and you didn't have to go through grief and pain, why would you choose to do something that would bring that upon you? It's going to depend on how you view God and how you answer that question. But the way that he's revealed himself is it's because he still cares for us and loves us. Well, there's another side to that, too. Yeah. And that is he loves and rejoices in righteousness. That's right. And I think that is exactly where we have to go with that. From what's revealed to us, the value and the blessing of being able to share himself and his blessings with his people is worth to him the pain and sacrifice. I think you really don't understand God until you understand how much love means in God. How much he seeks to give and to serve and to bless. And his eagerness to do that makes the pain and grief he experiences evidently worth it for him because he wasn't blindsided. And all, all of our information about God is just stuff that he has provided to us on our level. Exactly. So, I mean, we may not even be close to the concept, but he knows what we understand about things, and he says, okay, here's an example of something about God, and, and uses... Some are like a parable type. Right. Thing. Yes, I think we can trust that how God reveals himself to us is authentically correct, but it's obviously not exhaustive. I see yeah. that a lot in Revelation. I think that vision to John is something that John can understand. I don't necessarily take it as literal and everything, but he had to, he, he wanted John to see this and he portrayed it in some things that were pretty wild, but they're still within human reasoning things. Even if John saw things that were beyond human scope, when he described it, 
he had to use human terms and images that men could relate to. That's true. How else, even if you could see whatever that is, if there's a way to do that, if you were describing it to men, you've still got to describe it in human terms. So. Other thoughts? I think this reaction of God in verse 6 I think it even underscores more the the nature of free will. Because again, why would he feel this way if man had no choice in the matter? That's exactly right. So man can do things that cause God to be grieved. We can actually impact God's emotions. Which is so fundamental, but we don't think about it that way very much. It would make, if we had a more personal understanding of God, it would make us want to please Him more and, and want more to avoid grieving Him. We think of Him as sort of a, you know, superhuman robot. Then sin won't bother us nearly as much. We just don't want to get caught and go to hell. So, verse 7, what does God decide to do? Brought out man and animals and creeping things and birds. What does that sound like? Overkill. He's uncreating the creation. <laughs> exactly. Decreation. He is reversing what he had done. Because it's the same as in creation. What he does follows his statement. He states it and then the action follows. And in fact, there is just all kinds of stuff in the flood that decreates. What are some things that you can see? The water's coming together. <laughs> yes! The earth was covered over by water again, returning like it was before the third day of creation. And so not only does he destroy, in verse 7, the various categories, but he brings the earth to be filled by water again. Look at 8.1. God caused a wind to pass over the earth. That's the same word as 1.2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Spirit and wind are the same word in English. I mean, uh, in Hebrew, sorry. Um, and then, what does he do upon doing that. Then he separates the dry land and the waters again. And then the land appears, vegetation appears, the bird, birds are sent out, then the animals, then the human beings appear on the earth again. And again in 9.6, man is said to be made in the image of God. So it's like we, we uncreate and then recreate in kind of the steps and pattern of the creation, Cameron. When he says in verse um, 7 that he's going to destroy all the things, he doesn't mention the fishies. Did he like them? Uh, there's a reason he didn't mention the fish. They can swim. Yeah, they were fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't kill the fish. Say, Good observation. One question I had is, you know, if, if man was so wicked and evil, why punish the birds and all the other animals? Well, if man was so wicked, why put a curse on the ground? I think 
the rest of creation was detrimentally impacted by man's fall. You know, when somebody does wrong, often innocent bystanders are hurt. Another, I don't know, maybe something else to consider with that is we get really hung up on the creation nowadays. We get so excited, oh, that, that tree, you can't hurt that tree, or those animals, you can't hurt those animals. And the, all, all of creation was formed, put together, and set there for man to live in it and to have dominion over it. And so it would make sense that if we've ruined our habitat, we've ruined everything, and God's got to take care of everything. Yeah. Uh, it's not that God's going to say, oh, I'm going to make man extinct and let all these other things keep going on because they're super important to me. They weren't. They were there for us. Good point. I agree with that. So. I'll, I'll, I'll put one more out here. Maybe this... I don't know. I'm always not sure how far to go with these parallels. But I certainly think that decreation and recreation theme is there. It's hard not to see that. But if that's there, then I'm wondering if this is there also. Should we be seeing parallels between Noah and Adam? There are some pretty interesting ones if you stop and look at them. For example, look at 6-9. What did Noah do? What did Adam do in the garden? Yeah, God walked there in the garden with Adam, apparently. Uh, both of them rule over the animals. You know, Adam naming them. Noah preserving them. Uh, how many sons' names do we have for Adam? Three. And for Noah? Three. Uh, both of them evidently were workers of the ground. In the aftermath of the flood, how did Noah sin? So what caused his drunkenness? Fruit of a tree... What caused Adam's sin? The fruit of the tree. Of course, he ate it. Noah drank it. Uh, and the sin was in connection with nakedness. And someone else, else clothed Adam. Someone else clothed Noah. Uh, and then his son was cursed. His descendant was cursed. As Cain was, so was Canaan. Uh, and... After coming out from the flood in 9-1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it seems to me like Noah is almost a new Adam. Kind of starts over the earth again. I suspect some of that is, is legitimate as well. And that we're meant to see this as kind of a starting over, a new creation. And you've got the passage in 2 Peter 3 that more or less implies the same thing, I think. Uh, where he says in 2 Peter 3, um, verse uh, 6, the, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. His point is, we already live in a new world. No big deal if there's going to be another new creation. He says it hasn't continued as always was. If that world was destroyed, we've got a new one already now, starting with Noah. So, comments and questions? Would you say that uh, the earth was more wicked then than it is now, or if there's a way to tell that? I don't think we can say that. Um, there's a statement made somewhere uh, in 
8.21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Maybe the four there should be all though. But the idea, that's the same thing he said back in 6.5. Man hasn't changed. God has chosen not to destroy us again. Jacob. Does the walked with God phrase imply that they were perfect? Because Adam walked with God until he ate the fruit, and Enoch walked with God and was taken up to heaven. And it says Noah was blameless in his time, and he walked with God. I don't think so. I don't, I mean, if Enoch's walking with God meant that he had never sinned, then that would seem to call in question some passages that indicate everyone on the earth has sinned. So. And the fact that he showed him grace meant there was unmerited favor. Other thoughts? All right, well, obviously, quite a few different things to uh, consider in this uh, study, but I appreciate your uh, attention and thoughts and involvement. And uh, I realize my tenure here is a little more complicated than I had thought about. So I will be here next Thursday, which is whatever day that is, what, the 7th? Mm-hmm. I will not be here on the 14th. More than likely, I will not be here on the 14th. And I will be here on the 21st. So I'm here one week from today and three weeks from today. And then not again till like December. So. Next week and then I skip a week and then a week and then I'm gone. Alright. Thank you for your attention.